Hello there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the fallout from the U.S. protests in the Capitol, Europe's gambit to go green, and a new defense law in China. All that and more, coming up. Alright, let's get into the rapid-fire news. Alright, the French are vowing to keep the UK border closed. Uh, And for those of you wondering what that means, uh, so basically there is an underground tunnel that goes underneath the English Channel, the body of water between France and the island of Britain. Um, The French are vowing to keep that closed. So there's that. Apparently, it does not stop them from allowing migrants to go the other way. So, the British are a bit upset about that. Uh, Namely, namely, Nigel Farage, that's his name. Uh, The main advocate for Brexit, he's uh, calling it out, as he's been doing for a while. So, there's a bit of tensions between the two. As I've said in a previous episode... The French have essentially reignited a whole bunch of old rivalries across the continent uh, in recent, the recent few weeks that I've been doing this podcast. So much has happened, and it's only been 16 weeks. Uh, this is week number 16 we're going over now. It's insane. Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, avoiding any potential military conflict between the two, I don't think we're there yet, but you never know. I mean, nobody thought that the French would do such a harsh crackdown on Islam, and then a teacher got beheaded, and it was the last straw. So, every little thing counts. But, next up, we have Elon Musk overtaking Jeff Bezos as the richest man on Earth. Uh, And I have, like, a side note here that Bezos is likely more, even more furious with his divorce settlement that shaved uh, a couple tens of billions off of his net worth. And now Elon Musk is the richest man on earth. And yeah, he's doing a lot of stuff. Uh, Bezos is all in on his projects, uh, namely Amazon and the Amazon affiliates. Um, He's currently working on... What was he working on? I saw him in like a video where he was uh, basically piloting remotely these robot arms. So maybe he's working on some sort of... Uh, mech. <clears throat> and I know Elon Musk is working right now on not just Tesla, uh, but Starlink, which is where he's basically going to have satellites in space that beam uh, internet to places around the world. And, well, he has his own space industry, domestic space industry, that he can use to make that go. And he doesn't need to rely on NASA for it. So, I anticipate that he will maintain his position as the richest for at least a couple years, unless somebody else pops up out of nowhere. Uh, Who knows? I mean, we are entering a new industrial revolution, so old names can disappear really fast, especially as it kicks into high gear, but I think it'll kick into high gear sometime in the mid-century with, you know, automation and whatnot. As the technologies start to improve. But, uh, yeah. An interesting little story. 
Uh, next up, we have Iran testing uh, drones in a military exercise. And I don't know what much to say of it. It was interesting. But I guess I can draw the parallel between them and Turkey. Uh, Turkey supplied drones to Azerbaijan during the war in the Caucasus between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And, well, they were very effective. And the Turks have been really going all in on the drone strategy. Uh, to the point where the sanctions that the U.S. placed on them not too long ago uh, was targeted at their military industry, namely their production of drones, uh, which they need foreign components to build. But in the future, as the Turks uh, probably take this um, and move forward, because just like Iran and Russia, they're probably going to go all in on their domestic industry so that they aren't reliant on foreign things and while they're gonna take a hit in the short term they're probably gonna come out on in the long term as the great power of their region especially as we enter this new era of great power competition countries that can produce their own military equipment domestically are gonna have one hell of an advantage over their neighbors especially neighbors that need to rely on really really far away countries for their weapons like all of the Middle East, minus Iran, but something to look out for, and uh, interesting that I've turned something about Iran into something about Turkey, but Iran does have drones, they have producing their own, I believe that they actually do have a domestic production of drones, uh, with primarily in-house materials, I cannot, I, well I haven't confirmed that, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were fully sourced from inside of Iran, given the longer-term sanctions that have been put on them for a longer period of time than Turkey. But uh, drones are playing an increasingly greater role in warfare, and alluding to my other point a couple episodes back, where I talked about the embracing fundamental newness, and how whatever new conflict is fought, and I'm talking a conflict between the major powers, um, the big boys, that whose names that we actually know. Uh, if a conflict was fought between one of them, it people would go into it thinking it was World War II and would be very, very wrong and lots of people would die. And it looks like drones are going to play a key role in that and we'll see which militaries, actually we're getting to see right now, which militaries are adapting to the changing tide of warfare and which countries are not and when i say not we're looking at europe and even to an extent russia is guilty of this uh not embracing drones but i think that they'll be forced to get around to it eventually we'll see when that is the russians are ahead probably due to their constant competition with the u.s and china by proxy is getting ahead in drone tech but it's right now a purely American prerogative when it comes to bombing. And as far as, what is it? It's not strategic, tactical. Yeah. Tactical usage of drones uh, is right now in the Middle Eastern court. The major powers in the Middle East are actually ahead when it comes to the tactical usage of drones. 
and they're effectively revolutionizing the battlefield. And when you look at their terrain, it's perfect. Wide open desert uh, and urban warfare. Perfect for drones. And low humidity, so uh, even lasers are on the table for the countries like Turkey. And maybe Iran will get around to that. Don't know if they will. Maybe if they get a nuclear power plant, they can think about it. And they'll build some type of laser defense system. I don't know. It would be cool to see. But we'll we'll move on from this. Uh, do keep your eyes on this region, though. Especially with regards to the development of drones in their usage of war. Because if something were to happen in the Middle East, and let's be honest with ourselves, it's the Middle East, so something is probably bound to happen eventually... Um, I don't think America's gonna be there to stop the two sides from shooting at each other, which means someone's gonna actually win the war. Uh, maybe at an extreme cost, but they'll win, and they will have outsized influence in the region, and they will be using drones. That's my bet, alright? We don't know how whatever major conflict is gonna play out, but my bet right now is that drones are gonna revolutionize the war. Uh, and whoever makes the best use of them is going to win, which means Turkey and Iran are the ones to look out for. Because uh, as we saw in the Caucasus War, drones have kind of rendered armored units not in almost entirely obsolete. I mean, the anti-tank weapon has been around for a while, uh, and then there was the self-propelled rocket, the RPG, uh, but now with drones, you don't even have to be in sight of the tank, you just send in a kamikaze drone and boom, boom, boom. It's over. I kind of like the machine gun uh, rendered the cavalry obsolete. We could be seeing something like that. And countries that are heavily reliant on armored warfare like Russia could be in for a rough couple decades. But anyway, now we're going to hop on over to a different mountainous country away from Iran. And we're going to go to Nepal. Now, we've brought, we've mentioned Nepal on previous episodes, namely the uh, threat of civil war as their prime minister has effectively dissolved Congress. And they are, well, not Congress, their parliament, excuse me. Uh, and their parliament is trying to go through the courts to get him to um, not, <laughs> not dissolve parliament. Uh, whether or not they'll succeed depends on the court. I don't know if the court is corrupt or whatnot, but if they are, or if they're simply bribed at the other end of a gun, uh, they could say no, He, the prime minister can dissolve the parliament indefinitely, and you could either have an authoritarian uh, regime take power in a day, or you could have a civil war. And that played into the larger scale geopolitical, not necessarily conflict yet, but the standoff between China and India. So developments in Nepal seem to catch my eye a little bit more in that context. And so what we have here, uh, the Nepali Prime Minister Sharma Ali has vowed to take back the territories of Kalapani, Limpi Limpayadura, and Lipulik from India 
Now, I'm not entirely sure if I'm pronouncing those right. Kalapani, Limpayadura, and Lipulek from India. That's what they want to take back. Uh, these are in the territories in the north of India. Uh, namely, along obviously, along the border with Nepal. Uh, and he, st- he said this in an address to the National Assembly uh, in which he invoked the Sagali Treaty. Uh, what does this mean? Well, the Chinese already have outsized influence in Nepal, so they're obviously not going to say bad things about this because Nepal would give China a foothold on the other side of the Himalayas if they're able to secure control. Uh, And not just control, but a friendly country with which they can station troops in. It would give them a foothold on the other side of the largest mountain range in the world, which is obviously something India isn't going to like. So we'll see in the coming days, or even coming weeks, how India responds to this. Um... And I don't expect Nepal to declare war on India or even get into any military skirmish with the Indians, but the fact that the Chinese are there is what really changes the game. Where this would have been insignificant on its own, China is there, and they are friendly with the current Nepali government, which means that they could back the Nepali government. Now, whether or not the Nepali government holds is an entirely different question, and thus you have the issue, the potential issue, of civil war in Nepal. And if there is a civil war in Nepal, you can guarantee that it's going to immediately turn into a proxy war between China and India. Because China's strategic uh, goal is to box India in. They succeed very well economically doing that, securing uh, economic links to Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, and gaining outsized influence in Nepal, uh, which they already have, but if they were to secure Nepal indefinitely, that would effectively box India in from four different sides. Uh, The Indians obviously don't want that, because it would effectively render them in a way more... It would put them in a way more compromised position than they already are, and they're not going to want that. Now, regardless of if they recognize that right now, I'm sure that as this Cold War goes on, they're going to get a lot more sensitive to geopolitical moves and geopolitics between them and China in general. So, they're reflexively going to respond to China, trying to secure greater influence in Nepal, and to their benefit, right, to their benefit, but if India is able to win out in whatever civil conflict that arises in Nepal, and it's, they're on the edge, I'll say that much, I I don't know if they're going to actually fall into a civil war, but if they do, uh, or even it could just be like small-scale political violence that could be escalated into a civil war by the two giants at their door uh, getting involved in the fight. That's another possibility. Uh, Nepal is a very interesting location on the map to look at, not for Nepal itself, I'm sorry to Nepal, but obviously for China and India. If India 
were to secure um, preeminence over Nepal, it would secure the Himalayas. Because right now, the Himalayas are a bit in a bit of a standoff. Well, not the Himalayas. India is in a bit of a standoff between themselves and China in the Himalayas. Now, neither side can really get through the Himalayas. Uh, uh, what was I? Uh, neither side can really penetrate the Himalayas, the standoff between India and China. But if India were to secure Nepal, that would deny China access. And they would basically be the status quo where neither side can get through. And for India, who's kind of on the defensive footing right here, um, that would be the best case scenario, because uh, the only way they're going to get through the Himalayas would be to secure Tibet, and Tibet isn't exactly in a position right now where it's super duper rebellious to China, but uh, that could arise at some point in the future, but for now, all eyes are on Nepal, because uh, what happens in Nepal matters to China and India. So, keep a lookout for that. Uh, and it, if there is a civil war, we, we know who's going to be backing who. The Chinese are going to be backing the government of Nepal, uh, namely Sharma Ali, and India is going to be backing the rebels. Uh, and you'll probably see a strong Chinese military presence in Nepal. Uh, well, not Nepal. There'll be fighters in Nepal, but a strong military presence in Tibet, there we go, uh, n to enable better logistics into Nepal for their whatever insurgency that they're helping out, or m actual troops that they may send in. We don't know whether they're going to send in actual troops or if they're just going to back aside. Um, uh, we don't know. Maybe it could be Vietnam, but we don't know who would be sending troops in, or who would be just backing a rebel group. Because uh, India could send in troops, and China could just back the government of Nepal financially, and it would be Vietnam in the mountains for India. Or if it's the other way around, it could be Vietnam in the mountains for China. We don't know. We don't know, but the situation is unfolding, and we'll see where Nepal goes in the coming weeks. Now, on to the United States, and I'll use this to segue into the larger topic uh, as we get into the meat. We have the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, saying that he is, quote, lifting all of these self-imposed self restrictions on, and, end quote, on U.S.-Taiwan relations. And he said this in reference to the restrictions America put on itself after recognizing the People's Republic of China, which is Communist China or the mainland, um, way back a couple decades ago. So the restrictions that we imposed on ourselves with regards to our relations with Taiwan, he is saying he's now lifting those restrictions. Um, they're not lifted all the way. There's no like embassy between the U.S. and Taiwan, but we could see one pop up in the future. And that would effectively be the biggest FU to China that the US has delivered in a while. <laughs> really since the start of the trade war, really. That'd be it'd be wow. Changing talk about 
changing the geopolitical game, uh, formally recognizing Taiwan, and you'd know. It's not just the Americans uh, that the Chinese are worried about. They're worried about other nations following suit, especially in the wake of the coronavirus, where the vast majority of people around the world are blaming it on China. So people are, around the world are already angry at China, and if America does this and form, normalizes and form, reformalizes relations with Taiwan, other countries could follow, and China really doesn't want that. Because as the status quo stands, uh, Taiwan is not recognized as a country, which means uh, foreign influence to it is at the minimal that it, it could possibly be. If they're recognized as a country, well, suddenly, invasions of Taiwan are an invasion of a foreign country and not a rebel province. And China doesn't like that, so they're gonna stand, they're gonna be very, very angry at the Americans for the time being. The U.S. ambassador, amid all this, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., has also planned a visit to Taiwan this week. So, the Americans are cutting, uh, cutting back their restrictions on themselves uh, as they remove themselves from the rest of the world. I know this seems like America getting involved, but really it's just America disengaging from the People's Republic of China. That's what this is. If you're engaged with the PRC, People's Republic of China, you will try to appease them and try to make them happy by, I don't know, not recognizing Taiwan as an independent state. However, if you're disengaging from the People's Republic of China, then suddenly you don't care what they think about the issue of Taiwan, and you recognize them and don't restrict yourself when it comes to relations with Taiwan. Hmm, very interesting. But now, on to the larger topic, uh, which is the protests that happened in the U.S. Capitol, where protesters on Wednesday broke into the U.S. Capitol building. And when I say broke into, um, I really mean that the police opened the gates uh, the doors to the building appeared to have been smashed open. But from that point onwards, they were literally just escorted out by the police. Um, some Around 80 people were arrested. 40 officers were injured. It was reported that one of them died, but it, uh, it looks like that was from pre-existing conditions. Um, one person was shot, a protester. I believe she's still alive, though. Uh, so, all in all, wasn't too bad when you look at it. Symbolic, sure, but not bad in terms of violence, thank goodness. Uh, the news isn't going to say that. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, so what happened here, uh, you had a mob of people that casually walked through the Capitol. There were videos of people climbing over the walls, like the outside walls, where the layout of the stone allowed people to climb up. And then <laughs> there was a video where someone had edited the Mario music over it and someone fell and <laughs> they played the dying theme. It was pretty funny. But the bigger impact of this is not the actual protest itself or any of the people involved in the protest walking into the capital 
and then casually walking out by with police escort. Uh, and I don't mean that as then they were arrested immediately. I mean, there was just a line of police escorting them to the exit and they casually walked out. It was a really, I don't know, what do we, what do you say? Because when you actually look at the videos of what's happened, uh, it seems like the, some kind of semi wholesome thing. I, I, I don't know what to make of it, but the real impact is the fallout of what happened. Um, I guess I'll, before I get to that, I'll cover that the elected officials within the building were moved safely uh, to a secure place within the building. None of them got hurt. Uh, some would say, unfortunately, most of us would say, okay, good, they're alive and not hurt. They reportedly had to put on gas masks because the... Uh, police had deployed tear gas within the building uh, to help disperse the crowds. Uh, that was probably in the beginning because towards the end where you saw people just casually moving out, uh, there was no tear gas and they didn't appear to be in a really disturbed or anything. So not entirely sure really how this all went down or like the time frame of all the things that happened. Uh, just that day was a bit of a mess. And now we get into the fallout, which is mass purging on social media. Uh, starting with President Trump, obviously, because uh, he's been accused of inciting violence and insurrection and sedition. And Twitter, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, and Twitch have all suspended... Uh, President Trump's accounts indefinitely in response to these protests. Uh, and this is, uh, as far as Twitter goes, this is not the POTUS account. It was his personal account. So the POTUS, President of the United States account that Trump has, is still active and he's still tweeting from it. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. But there's now even talk about a second impeachment. And when I say talk, I mean they're taking actions to do it right now. And... Even before that, they were trying to pressure Mike Pence into using the 25th Amendment. He said no, so now they're going through with impeachment again. Uh, shoot. Uh, they might actually succeed this time. You know, assuming they get to the Senate before he's, his term is over, supposedly. But um, I don't know why they would do this. He, the man at this point, on January 11th, has nine days, nine and a half days, because it's like two o'clock right now. He has nine and a half days, and it took them three months just to get impeachment to the Senate. I don't know what they're expecting to do in nine days, or why they even feel like bothering to rush. Um, maybe they're trying to make it so that he can't run again in 2024. I personally don't believe that there will be a 2024. Um, but in the midst of all this and all this chaos, many, many of his supporters, his open supporters, not me, <laughs> uh, namely because I don't use my social media all that much, but his more vocal supporters have been banned indefinitely. And anybody who is remotely pro Trump are being removed. And what you have in, in light of that. Uh, as a consequence, is this mass exodus of people 
to places like BitChute, Parler, and Gab. Uh, with BitChute being the, um, if I would have had to describe them, BitChute would be like a YouTube alternative. Uh, Parler would be like a Twitter alternative. And Gab, um, a Facebook alternative? I'm not too familiar with Gab. I'll have to get it. I know I have to do it like a manually because uh, they're they all they've already been removed from the Google Play Store and the App Store from Apple because Apple's in on the take as well. Amazon has apparently shut down the servers that Parler was using because uh, they had like an Amazon server hosting service uh, and Amazon shut it down. So now Parler's trying to rebuild their own from scratch instead of going to someone else, which I do believe is the smart choice. And I think you'll see more companies doing that moving forward. And basically the end of cancel culture and the end of this influence of these major these companies uh, in that respect is you're watching it right now. You're watching them deliberately sabotage their influence uh, while cashing in that influence to get short-term gains. But in the future, you won't be able to do that because the first thing people are going to do is make sure that they have everything in-house and are self-sufficient. Uh, and then you won't be able to cancel people. So, all in all, the end of cancel culture is coming. So, we have that to look forward to. But, uh, uh Gab is apparently already there. They already have everything in-house. They're servers, so they can't be taken down by other people. And there's that, so there's been an even bigger exodus to Gab, and they've they've apparently had really, really slow, uh, their servers are moving really, really slow because of the massive influx of people, and they do plan on getting things up and running, uh, you know, at moderately regular speeds again, so there's that. But, um, on top of all of this, on top of all of that... There are troops, uh, the military, they are swarming all over the capital. And the number being thrown around is about 7,000 troops. And there are videos, they have this massive fence around the capital, and there are troops just every block, every corner, every, every pathway, there's a dude there in uniform. It's ridiculous. There was a video of another bus coming in deploying yet more troops. So the number uh, be, uh, being thrown out, which is 7,000, is likely growing as we speak. Um, there's been a massive no-fly zone put up around the capital. And it's really interesting to look at the uh, air traffic control map. There we go. Uh, where you see all this massive sea, the, all these dots, which are flights. And then you see this massive circle of emptiness around the capital. Uh, very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, these are wild times we're living in. Uh, but that... Uh, the situation for that is still unfolding as we speak. Um, so I'll probably do little small updates on it in later episodes. Unless it gets like resolved within this week. Don't know if it will. Uh, I'm sure... Even if it does, the fallout uh, isn't going to be resolved in a week. So, we'll be looking at this in later weeks as we come up to the inauguration, which is in next week. Huh. 
it's nice to know that 2021 is moving faster than 21, 21, than 2020 did. That is already a nice thing to console ourselves with. The longest year in human history is over. And we'll get into the European Green Deal when we come back. All right, we're back, and we're going to talk about the European Green Deal. Uh, not to be confused with the European Green New Deal, uh, which is its own thing, or the Green New Deal in America, which is its own thing. But um, the European Parliament? Yes. Or is it the Commission? I know it's it was the head of the European Executive Branch, which would mean the Commission, that was uh, doing the speeches on this. Um, so I'll just say that the EU, for convenience, uh, they have made a green deal, a European green deal, uh, and the goals of which is to make Europe the first climate-neutral continent by 2050, and climate-neutral is just a very nice way of saying carbon-neutral, uh, there is a heavy emphasis on f the farming sector, namely subsidies to help grow healthy foods and organic foods. Uh, they want to reduce carbon emissions in the industrial sector. And my the main takeaway that I get from this is that it's very, very vague, and it overuses the word climate. Like I just mentioned, they want it to be climate neutral by 2050, when they could have just said carbon neutral, because it's the same thing. Uh, and for those who don't know what carbon neutral is, it means you uh, produce less carbon than you take in. Carbon neutral. It basically not necessarily means you stop polluting, but it means you're not overdoing it. This is the best way I can describe um, carbon neutrality. So... We have here, uh, well, we really don't have anything here because they don't go into any real specifics uh, aside from government will be there to assist and try to make things move along. Uh, don't know if they'll succeed. I'm just going to speculate on this. If they do succeed, it'd be pretty interesting. Uh, but I don't feel that they will unless they, you know, get the technologies right for the different regions of Europe. Uh, if they're going to do solar power, it's going to have to be in the south and in the Mediterranean. And if they're, uh, well, and if they're going to do wind power, it's going to have to be in the north, like Europe. And they can't do, you can't use Britain anymore, but they, they can use Norway, I believe? Or is it Sweden. One of them. One of them is in the Eurozone. I know that much. Uh, actually, we'll look at this right now. <laughs> I've come prepared with my handy dandy iPad. We're going to look for this right now. Live on air. If the search bar will work with me. New countries. And we'll just look for an image so that it shows us the map. There we go. All right, member states. All right, so yes, Sweden and Finland are a part? Yes, all right, all right. 
So EU, the EU encompasses both Sweden, Finland, and Denmark. So optimum locations for wind power. We've gone to extensive lengths here for this podcast. Uh, so they have the Nordic countries for that. Um, sure, Norway and Iceland would participate. Uh, they are not a part of the EU, but they are in the Schengen area, uh, which is the Schengen being the common currency. Well, that's the Eurozone, but kind of like a free movement of peoples within the zone. Uh, so there's that. Uh, they would have a harder time getting Romania, Bulgaria uh, to cooperate, but they could um, use I- Ireland for wind power. And I say wind power because it's better. It's the better alternative for the Northern Europeans, given the general lack of sunlight that they get, especially for Germany, who the sun doesn't shine on. Uh, and I, I bring this up uh, power based on location because Germany has a massive, they did a massive build out of solar panels, but the Germans don't get sunlight. They don't get anywhere near enough sunlight to justify it. So they're running a massive deficit and they're using lignite. And lignite is a powdery coal-like substance that's even worse when it comes to polluting the air around you. And they're using that because their solar build-out didn't work. And when you look at the fact that Germany doesn't really get all that much sunlight, well, no shit. (laughs) But, oh, poor Germany. They did all that. So, if they're going to do this, they're probably going to want to try to get it right. Otherwise, they're going to be wasting money putting solar panels where the sun doesn't shine and putting wind turbines where the wind doesn't blow. So, if you do it by location, like solar panels on the Mediterranean, hmm, uh, you can get lots of sunlight and you could build the infrastructure to channel that energy uh, to the north. Because the Mediterranean gets pretty consistent sunlight more than Northern Europe does, and most of the factories and industrial base are in Northern Europe, so you could have a pretty strong interdependency between North and South and kind of help bridge that gap, because um, the South is kind of at a disadvantage due to the productivity of the North, uh, and you know they can't devalue their currency to be more competitive because they're all part of the same currency zone, the Euro. But if they did this correctly, and and by did, which is past tense, I mean if they do it, because they haven't done it yet, if they do this correctly, they can help mend that gap, that divide between North and South, um, and maybe incentivize countries to stay in the EU, like Italy and France. France is technically Northern European, but they have access to the Mediterranean on their southern coast, uh, they could, this, if it works, they could convince Spain to stay a part of the EU, uh, instead of those three going their own way, and I bring those three up specifically, because those are the three that we know have the highest, have one of the most active Euroskeptic bases in the Eurozone, outside of the Brits, who have just left, uh, there's been much talk about it. Ital exit, 
And when you combine the people who don't want to be a part of the Euro and the people who don't want to be a part of the European Union uh, within Italy, that's more than a supermajority who would be in favor of leaving the EU or leaving their economic influence in some way. So, Italy is going to be a point of contention, you know, between European federalists and Euro skeptics as Italy, whenever Matteo Silvini probably takes power in the next couple elections, we'll see. Uh, but if he does, we can expect strong Euroskeptic uh, policies to be put in place up to and potentially including Italy exiting the EU. Italy exit. Uh, Macron, I brought this up, he admitted that if France had held a referendum, the French would have voted to leave. And with Marine Le Pen, um, stalking him in the polls i don't imagine that that sentiment has gone down and then there's spain who was one of the countries that get hit the hardest by the pandemic and still waiting for relief from the european government uh they probably are very disillusioned right now and are probably very upset with europe and by europe i mean the eu which could lead them to leave as well. And, well, Spain would be a very integral power to solar power in the EU because Spain gets lots of sunshine. They, the, Spain's a pretty arid country uh, and mountainous, so the sun issue wouldn't necessarily be a problem for them. But if they leave, the EU isn't going to get that for anything other than a price. But... Those are the three countries I'm looking out for, for potential exiting of the EU. The further east you get, um, I kind of start to question whether or not they'll actually leave. Because, like, in terms of Poland and Hungary, uh, well, Poland, they kind of fear being invaded by the Russians, and with good reason. So, I don't know if they would take the gamble of pissing off the entire EU... Uh, not that the EU itself can do anything to a country that leaves, but, well, outside of the leaving process, because we saw the Brexit and how long that took, they can make the process of leaving painful, but once you're gone, um, they can't really do much, because the EU, as I mentioned before, isn't too good at imposing what it wants onto other countries. It's good at imposing what it wants onto its own constituent member states and restraining them, but it doesn't really work well when when it comes to restraining other countries, and that's the main reason I said it, the European Union, despite being a bloc that collectively is a peer power to the United States and China, um, it's not a great power. Its constituent member states can be like Germany, France, Italy, and, well, used to be Britain, but the EU itself is better at restraining its member states than it is at uh, imposing its will on others outside of the bloc. So once you leave, well, there's not too much the EU can do about it. However, the other countries within the EU can. So that's the caveat there. Uh, and Poland probably doesn't want to make Germany angry, Germany being the kingpin of the EU right now, uh, and Poland has a direct border with the Germans. Uh, 
they probably don't want a direct border with the Germans and the Russians as an independent nation again, unless they can be secure, which they can't because they're wide open flatland. I don't think that the Polish are going to lead the EU until the EU is literally just a husk, which would mean other countries would have to leave first because they're probably enjoying the relative security that it brings. I mean, I know there's NATO, but the additional layer is probably helpful to their conscience. Uh, but Hungary, on the other hand, is buddy-buddy with Russia. So they're more likely to leave should Eurosceptic uh, views push for a hung exit. Hung exit? I don't know what that would be. We, we don't have a, a witty Brexit synonym for that. But... The further to the southeast of Europe you get, the more Russia-friendly the countries become. Northeastern Europe is hostile, straight-up hostile to Russia, and Russia is straight-up hostile to them. So they're probably not going to leave until the EU is, uh, well, the Holy Roman Empire. But the southern Europe is probably going to be more likely to leave. Uh, and that's not just southeastern Europe, but all of southern Europe, up to and including Italy and Spain. So, uh, the long story short, the perpetual secession crisis is already upon them, and they could use this green deal, this European green deal, as a means of uh, gluing them together. Because uh, it's really difficult. It's going to be really difficult in the coming years to keep the bloc together, uh, especially as countries are going to be asking the question, the, the hard question of, if you couldn't help us during that crisis, that crisis being the pandemic, uh, how are you going to help us in other crises? And the answer that the EU is going to give is not going to be satisfactory. The perpetual secession crisis is upon us. We'll see how the EU responds. This could be their ticket out of that nightmare for Europe, but they I that depends on them getting it right, and I don't know if they will. But we're going to move on from Europe, and we're going to go to the new defense law that the Chinese have signed, uh, and what it does. The new Chinese defense law that has taken effect uh, grants the military new war powers. Uh, first and foremost, it weakens the state council's control over the military. Uh, the state council is more civilian-led and gives that control over to the Central Military Commission, which is uh, headed by Xi Jinping. That effectively means that they've transferred powers, uh, wartime powers, from the civilian-controlled uh, government, the more civilian-controlled, I mean, it's, it's China, They've taken it from more civilian control to more centralized control uh, in Xi Jinping, who is in charge of the commission. Uh, the other thing that they've done... Uh, well, actually, I'll get into why that's important. Um, it's important because the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, uh, otherwise known as China's Army, they swore allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party. Not the government, not the people or a constitution, like in the United States, where the troops swear an oath to the constitution and to the republic, uh, and to the people. So, there's that. 
but the Chinese military swears to the party, not the government. And there's pretty important distinction because if someone else were to take control of the government, the party is the the army isn't uh, not dang it. The army is under the supervision and swears allegiance to the Communist Party. So even if someone else were to take control of the government, the army has sworn allegiance to the party, which would mean they would the party would effectively have unilateral authority to tell the army to take back control of the government in whatever event that they lost control. What can you say? It's communism. But so that's why that's important. Uh, whenever the military is being transferred, the control over the military is being transferred from one person to another, because um, the party has the army swear allegiance to it, not the people. Uh, furthermore, uh, the defense law states that, quote, when China's sovereignty, unification, territorial integrity, security, and development interests are threatened, then it shall conduct a national or partial mobilization, end quote. Now, let's, let's break that down. Let's break that down. All right, we... We know who the army is loyal to, and we know what the party itself, uh, uh, we, we know that they're not going to give up that power anytime soon. And we know that Xi Jinping is in charge of the party, and now he's in charge of the military. So let's break down what this entails, all right? Uh, given all of those, let's look at what the bill entails with regard to sovereignty, unification, territorial integrity, security, and development interests. Let's let's break that down. Sovereignty. Other countries attacking China, uh, currently none, but in the event that they were attacked, they defend their sovereignty. All right. So, uh, they defend their sovereignty with a national or partial mobilization. All right. So they're going to conscript people into the military. All right. All right. Sounds reasonable. Any other army would do the same. All right. Uh, unification. That screams Taiwan. <laughs> so in whatever event that they could, they could just wake up tomorrow and say, you know what? We're taking Taiwan back. National mobilization. Uh, or, or even just a partial mobilization where they mobilize the coastal areas between them and the island that Taiwan is on. And they basically commandeer everything in the region for the use of the military, and they invade the island. They could do that, or they could go full wartime and do a national mobilization. So that's sovereignty, that's unification. But now let's go to uh, territorial integrity. I wonder who they're talking about there. Uh, my guess, India and the South China Sea, both are claims of territory made by the Chinese, uh, and they claim that they have to defend their territorial integrity from India and from the nations in the South China Sea. We can see them skirmishing, legit skirmishing, um, in the mountains between them and India, uh, and that's with no civil war in Nepal or political violence in Nepal. That's already there. That territorial integrity, they could just wake up one day again and go, you know what? 
India's threatening our territorial integrity. Uh, we need to take control of the Himalayas. And then they do a national mobilization. Or they crack, or they use this in the event of a Nepal, well, not Nepal, Tibet. If Tibet were to rise up against China, they could go, you know what? They don't even have to go unification or sovereignty. They could go territorial integrity. We cannot allow India to use Tibet to threaten us. We're going to crack down on Tibet. Or even if Tibet just does something that China doesn't like, like maybe China feels the need to go um, uh, give Tibet the Xinjiang treatment, uh, they could go uh, territorial integrity, Tibet, and then they crack down. They could use it to crack down. This gives them a wide range of powers that they could use and abuse in any way, shape, or form. We probably aren't even going to be able to predict that. Uh, how specifically that they'll use these powers, but we can probably guess that if they're going to use them at some point. So that's, and then we get to the South China Sea, where they're claiming that the entire thing belongs to China, and anybody who moves into the, what they're claiming is their territory, well, that's, you're infringing on China's territorial integrity. So now we're going to do a partial or national mobilization to destroy you. And we're justified because you're infringing on our territorial integrity. So there's that. Then you get to security. Breaking that down. Uh, domestic threats like rebellious Tibetans or Uyghurs or Hong Kong or hell, even Taiwan. Technically, uh, Taiwan is a threat to Chinese security or maybe... Something happens in North Korea, and China feels the need to intervene uh, and keep those pesky Koreans from unifying. Oh. <laughs> so there's that. Then you get to development interests, and I think this is the uh, this is kind of like the icing on the cake here, because when you think of development interests, I want you to think of China's debt trap diplomacy, and I want you to think of China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, so, essentially, imagine East Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, and even the certain parts of Europe, like Greece, who have signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative. All of those countries are development interests for China. It may, maybe it's Africa for raw materials. Maybe it's Europe for trade access. Maybe it's the Middle East for oil. All of these are development interests for China, which effectively means that something that happens in a country in all of the any one of these places could trigger a national or partial mobilization in China where they will then probably try to intervene. Maybe they well, I mean, they have a development interest in Nepal. They're developing ties with the Nepali government. If, say, some rebel scum were to try to rise up against Nepal's government, well, that threatens China's development interests, and they need to mobilize nationally or partially to deal with the situation. You can see this going a whole lot of different ways. Some of them are going to be good, and a lot of them are going to be pretty bad. Well, or maybe some of them will be bad, and a lot of them will be pretty good. Depends on where you stand on the issue. Um, I... 
I, I'd imagine that the people on China's borders aren't going to think that Chinese intervention is a good idea, namely because they don't integrate with China uh, strategically and keep their relation purely economic. So, we could see China taking up the uh, foreign policy that America's had for the past couple decades where they're going to be the policeman, uh, but not the policeman in terms of other people things, uh, but the policeman in terms of we have interests here and you are doing something we don't like because it threatens our interests, so we're going to step in. So effectively, dollar diplomacy? Kind of like dollar diplomacy? Except it doesn't involve uh, business interests, it means whatever the Chinese define at the time. I don't know. I don't have like a... Maybe one of these days I'll come up with a, a witty uh, name for this type of diplomacy that this defense law with its mobilization pretenses sovereignty, unification, territorial integrity, security, or development interests could trigger. Um, I... What would you call it? I'll think about it. I'll think about it. I'll try to come up with something, something witty that'll catch the ear and we can latch on to. Uh, for now, the best comparison I have is dollar diplomacy. But uh, we'll, we'll come up with something. We'll come up with something. But uh, all right, we're gonna get into the closing segment in a little bit and cover what we've, uh, what I've learned gathering information for today's episode, and maybe you'll take something away from that as well. All right, we're back. I'm going to get into these closing statements before we end out the episode. Um, I have thought up uh, in this little brief period between the recordings of a name for this diplomacy uh, for China and their potential foreign interference due to their domestic policy with their national security law. Um, and I have dubbed it Dragon Diplomacy. Ooh, yes. So basically, they appear and breathe fire on whatever threatens their interests, uh, however they define them, uh, and then they fly away. Then, well, that's that. They don't stick around to um, make sure that everything's all right in said country. They put down threats to their interest, and then the rest is up to the country. That's how I see it playing out. Of course, they'll maintain their influence there. So, the dragon is there in spirit, but the dragon goes home uh, to reap the benefits of their maintained influence. So, dragon diplomacy. Be on the lookout for it in the coming decades. Um, but, on to the main takeaway from today's episode. Um... The unraveling of the old multinational orders and agreements, and the replacement of them with new ones. We have NATO, old, uh, being replaced with, well, an independent Europe. Okay, we have the EU, old, being replaced with an independent Europe. So, uh, both of those are kind of out the window. Um... America has been pulling troops out of Europe. The Trump administration in particular started demanding that they pay their, basically pay up to defend themselves, not pay money to America, but rather 
pay for a military worthy of the name. Um, and the EU is, as we mentioned before, now that Britain is gone, the perpetual secession crisis is already upon them due to the backlash from the coronavirus lockdowns and the lack of help. Uh, from the perspective of the countries hit the hardest, uh, Italy and Spain being chief among them. We have the replacements of the old order of, you know, peacekeeping missions around the world by the UN. That's being replaced with military self-sufficiency. Uh, I guess another old order is people getting all of their weapons from foreign backers. Um, like, I'm not talking about rebel groups. I'm talking whole nations getting all their weapons from foreign countries. And that order is going to be replaced with military self-sufficiency. And we can already see this in the rising powers and the preeminent powers. Uh, not even just the U.S., but Turkey, France, Iran, Russia, even Sweden. Uh, Turkey, Fran Turkey is um, getting there. China is also getting there. They're still stealing weapons. Oh. And weapons technology from America and Russia, but they are reverse engineering them and then producing them themselves. So it's not like they're not producing their own weapons, but they are not designing a lot of them. So say what you will, probably uh, saves money on R&D costs, but there's that. I guess I should add China to the list. Um, there's that. NAFTA. The old NAFTA, that's old, and it got replaced with the USMCA. The One China policy, old, replaced with the recognition of Taiwan, de facto recognition of Taiwan, by the US and many other countries likely to follow. You have the end of uh, a, how do I put it, the Asia's dependence on Europe and America for trade, to their reliance more so on themselves. And I don't mean them on like a national net level, I mean in a regional level, with the Regional Comprehensive Economic Par Partnership, or RCEP, the massive trade deal that encompasses uh, almost all of the countries in East Asia, up to and including Australia and Taiwan. Well, not Taiwan, I meant Japan. Uh, Taiwan is very much not invited. And India is not either. Well, they're invited, but they're choosing not to go. Um, so you have the shift from east-west trade to just east. Uh, just east and the west is trying to get in. Uh, similar to the old days of the spice trade. So there's that. And you, the final note, the final trend that I see is the end of the U.S.-led world order. Uh, namely due to the Americans not feeling but not wanting to be bothered with upkeeping it and other players stepping in to fill the shoes here and there they're really big shoes but collectively you'll see powers fill in the fill in the vacuum left by the United States with China being the biggest one as we move from a US led global order to a Chinese led semi order as they their influence is going to be mainly focused around the Indo-Pacific region uh, and the Eurasian region.
so it is really big, just not global like the United States. And I'm sure the Chinese, so long as they have outsized influence within it, are going to be more than content to have that. Um, it's the return of the Silk Road. It's the return of the spice trade, essentially. Uh, and for some countries, it'll be the return or the introduction to the tributary system where you pay tribute to China. We'll see who ends up getting the short end of that stick. But it's really... Um, it's different. I'll say that much. I'm pretty sure no one... Well, no one would have predicted this out loud, and no one could have seen it happen as fast as it's happening right now, and the lockdowns and the panic with regards to the virus have really accelerated a lot of these trends, especially uh, with regards to the U.S. and China, where the U.S. is preoccupied with itself, uh, with the virus, and then with the riots that came out, and now with the capital incident. Uh, America's really, really, really preoccupied with itself right now. And even when all of this chaos is over, I don't see that ending. Namely, because I don't see a Biden administration. But I don't I don't imagine uh, these trends being reversed in any long-term fashion. Because Britain is gone. Alright? And they voted twice with uh, a majority for the first time and then a supermajority the second time to leave the EU. I don't imagine that anything outside of a straight up takeover of the government by namely the Labour Party, uh which is their their left wing party that was pro no what that was anti Brexit. Uh I don't see them going back to Europe. And the longer that they stay away from Europe, the longer they're gonna be like, hmm, you know, maybe we don't need to go back. Alright? It'll take time to build up. Just like isolationism will take time to really cement itself in America. But once it does, uh, you have a return to the old normal. Uh, and that return to the old normal is going to shatter what we view today as normal. Uh, we view Europe as a unified bloc where everybody's happy and everybody's at peace with one another. But Britain leaving has effectively begun the unraveling of the EU. And countries going to look to Britain and they're going to go, well... If they can do it, we can too. And every little bit, every little thing that happens in the EU is going to be blamed on the EU from this point moving forward, especially major events. And you're going to see Euro skepticism rise in key countries across the continent. And you'll eventually end up with multiple separate blocks of influence. Germany will have theirs. France will probably have theirs. Uh, and Britain will probably have theirs as well with countries that trade with it. And they're probably going to make off like bandits from every country that leaves. Uh, who's probably going to try to negotiate a trade deal with Britain first and foremost. And the Brits are going to make... They're going to have one hell of a killing. They're going to make one hell of a killing off of that. But... But, uh... I don't see it as necessarily a bad thing, though. I mean, there are lots of people worried about China... Uh, me personally, so long as they leave me alone, I don't, I, I don't feel the need to get involved in places around the world, uh, especially given how that turned out with the last few times that we've done that, uh, namely in the Middle East over some n nonsense, uh, WMDs anybody, but 
it's well i don't believe it will be entirely bad thing because i imagine the belt and road is going to be a pretty good thing for a lot of countries in central asia i'm not gonna sit here and pretend that everything that they do is going to be bad all right then we we might complain about uh how they treat their people and but you know they have their country all right we have ours i say we focus on ourselves and I I'd imagine there are people going to view me as cold-blooded for saying that, but we can't expect everybody to be like ourselves. And, well, I can't expect that America's going to rule the world forever. Uh, and in part, I kind of, I imagine a lot of us really don't want to. We kind of want to be left alone. And I feel that that sentiment is going to be reverberated across the world, especially as the as nations reassert their sovereignty, uh, nations even within nations, because there are a lot of countries out there whose borders are kind of artificial. Um, looking namely at Africa and the Middle East, and we'll see the end of those borders in time, and a, well, a return to national sovereignty. We'll see where it goes. I mean, I imagine it's going to come with more war as countries fight for their own self-interest. Um... But for some people, it's going to be the best of times. For others, it'll be terrible. Uh, and for some, it might not be too different than what we already have. But um, I guess that'll be a conversation we have another day. But before I go, before I go, I want to thank Michaela for the big bucks she's been throwing my way. I really like. Uh, by all means, don't stop. But if there's one thing we can't stop, it's that the fact that the world is changing. The world is changing, but we're going to watch it, and we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I hope you have enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.